You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Jeremiah McElwee, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. You are the chief merchandising officer at Thrive Market. I think people are probably familiar with Thrive Market, and you've been there since the very beginning. We were just chatting about this before we started recording. Tell me about when you met the founders and like what's the background there? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I am a natural products lifer. I've been doing this for 27 years in different iterations, started in health food stores, and then switched teams a number of times, went over to the product development side, uh, went back to retail, and worked at the time for a number of years for Whole Foods Market and uh, left Whole Foods Market in 2013 and was consulting and kind of doing my own thing, had some adventures. It was really a fun time in my life and actually had a mutual friend with one of the co-founders of Thrive, Gennar Lovelace, and she basically corralled me at Expo West and said, you have to meet Gnar and you have to hear about what they're working on. It's right up your alley. And I think you guys would really kind of fall in love, you know, um, were her terms. And so uh, I met Nick and Gnar and heard about this idea at the time was called Shop Tribe. And the idea was kind of the modern food cooperative environment where people join a, a club and then their buying power brings down the pricing. And they're able to buy the products they love. And so they, Nick and Gennar, the co-founders of Thrive, hired me for 30 days um, back in June 2014 uh, with the idea that I would actually put together their health and beauty catalog. And so I did that exercise, sent that back to them. And funny part of the story was that um, I clicked send on the presentation I had put together for Gennar, and he called me back. I mean, almost instantly. It was it was shocking. My phone rang. It felt like as soon as I hit send, and I was, you know, as a consultant, you're you're trying to please your client, and I was actually concerned. I thought I thought, oh no, I I maybe this wasn't what they were looking for. Maybe he's disappointed. When I answered the phone, I said hello. I was kind of confused, and he's like this is amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, this is incredible. I can't <laughs> believe this. We're so excited. And so um, shortly thereafter, they they kind of invited me out to LA and basically said, we want to hire you. And funny enough, at the time, um, Thrive Market wasn't a thing, right? So I had multiple clients and I kind of said, I think my quote was like, I don't want a job though. Like, I don't want to be hired. Like, I want to keep consulting. And after meeting Nick and Gennar though, I mean, I think my biggest concern was that this was some kind of a fly-by-night operation and they were it was a quick cash grab and they were just trying to scale and get out like like we see with so many e-commerce businesses, right? And um, for me, like I mentioned at the top, this is kind of a life lifelong commitment to me and natural and organic products are not just what I do for my career, it's also what I believe in and how my wife and I and my family live our life. And that once I got past that hurdle of understanding that this was a mission and this was this idea that we could change the world and bring access to people who didn't have access to natural and organic products, whether it was geography or whether it was economics. As soon as I saw the integrity and kind of the heart that Nick and I were working with, I realized quickly I had to join the team and had to drop my other clients and had to really focus my energy here and, and 
um, from there, it was putting together the quality standards, putting together the initial catalog offering and, and full steam ahead. And, and we've been kind of on a rocket ship ever since. Did you grow up in a family where this was a, an important thing? Or how did you get into this? So how much time do we have on this podcast? <laughs> well, I've got another couple of hours. I, I feel like your schedule is going to be <laughs> the, the limiting go. factor. But yeah, what's the origin story of that? I mean, it's a funny story. I, I'm totally the opposite, actually. Um, it's, it's doing this for so long. I have so many friends and peers and colleagues, and most of my closest friends are in this industry, too. It's just something that when you meet others that do this for a living, um, you realize they have really big hearts and they're deeply committed to this work. And it's hard to not make friends. Um, but a lot of them have that story you were just talking about, which is, I was raised by hippies on a commune and we only ate from our garden and, and we drank the purest spring water from Oregon. And, you know, it's like, um, I was a South Jersey kid, um, raised by a single mom. Unfortunately, my father was an alcoholic who left the family when I was really young. And my mom worked for a conventional grocery store and worked really hard. I was the classic Gen X latchkey kid, starting from the time I was about seven or eight years old, coming home to a, a low-income apartment and my mom working her butt off to to pay for us. And to be honest, like finding the most affordable food we could, right? So yeah. a lot of that was fast food and craft mac and cheese out of boxes. And, you know, I was making it for myself when I got home and and my mom was, you know, collecting the overtime and, and trying to just keep a roof over her head. So it wasn't uncommon for my mom to pick me up after school, wherever I was, or from you know, a sport that I was doing or wherever I was at a friend's house and stop at McDonald's on the way home and get burgers and McNuggets and, and drive home. And so I was the polar opposite. But subsequently, I ended up with a lot of digestive issues and problems. And I didn't really understand this was in the 80s. Um, so I'm dating myself. But this is obviously before the internet. And obviously before there was a lot of awareness about diet and health and, and some of the related digestive issues. And so I had a number of issues that uh, I went to tons of Western practitioners to try to get an answer for and could never get a diagnosis. And again, awareness was just low back then. And, you know, I got everything from your lactose intolerant to, you know, maybe we should send you to a university for testing to have a part of your, your intestines removed, like all kinds of crazy things. And it wasn't until I went to Boston to go to college, UMass Boston, and I just happened to stumble across a help wanted sign at a small herbal apothecary that had a juice bar. At that point of my life, I was, you know, 19 or 20 and really unhealthy, very, very thin and um, chronic digestive problems, cramping all the time, just discomfort everywhere I went. And I got a job just just because I needed to pay my way through college and and pay for my tuition and my rent. And it ended up being at this organic juice bar. I started reading the books and it talked about diet, the importance of diet and the importance of probiotics and the importance of not eating fast food and processed food and eating whole foods and fruits and vegetables. And what was that book or what were you reading at that point? You know, so it, it was a number of books. And this is the interesting part of the story was I to be honest with you, thought it was all bullshit. I was like, this is craziness. Like, why would I have never heard of this before? Um, <laughs> but it was uh, Linda Rectopage's 
healthy healing, prescriptions for nutritional healing was another one. Earl Mendel's Vitamin Bible was a great one. I mean, these are all old school books. Um, Norman Walker and Bernard Jensen wrote a number of small publications on a host of different topics. But these are all the old guard of like kind of from the 60s and 70s, people who are writing about natural living. I started just reading these books thinking, what do I have to lose? And I started cross-referencing and across all of them, that current, that theme remained, which was eat whole foods, stop eating processed foods, minimize your, your meat and dairy and, and all of that and focus on fruits and vegetables, eat green foods, drink vegetable juice, take probiotics, um, really basic things now. But back then in the early 90s, it was pretty earth shattering. And especially from you know a kid from South Jersey who was on the standard American diet his whole life and didn't know any better, I guess you could say. And at that point, I just dove in and I thought, what do I have to lose by doing this? It's not what I want to do. I like the way I, I like the foods I grew up on, but I'm also in a ton of discomfort. And the people were the people at the juice bar helping you discover all of this, or like how did you how did you come across this? It seems like those two things would be linked. Well, so interestingly enough, it was a place called Harnett's Homeopathy and Body Care, and the founder was a man named Anthony Harnett who had started Bread and Circus Market in the north in the Boston, New England area. And so he had sold Bread and Circus to Whole Foods Market, Hmm. you know, for some, at the time, it was like 20 something million dollars, which was this crazy transaction in the natural products world, like that had never happened. Wow. But when he sold, a lot of the culture left Bread and Circus and went with him. And when he started this little apothecary, to your point, a bunch of healers and different people with different backgrounds, whether it was Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, herbal healing, nutrition, all of these people kind of migrated to his new business. And so, yeah, to your point, I read the books, but I also had these incredible people around me who were telling me like, oh, you just need to eat better. And here, try this herb or here, you know, and the juice bar happened to be right next to this bulk herb area where we sold herbs and jars and different powders. And the woman who managed that department was an herbal herbalist, Western herbalist, but also an Ayurvedic herbalist. And, you know, so she was like a great mentor and would just sit there and, you know, I didn't realize that the, at the time I was a young guy, so I didn't realize the wisdom that was being kind of dropped on me, but it definitely has shaped my whole career. And you know, so subsequently fast forward a little bit, I dropped out of college to become the juice bar manager there and, you know, dove in because my life was transformed so radically that I just felt like I had to share this with as many people as I could. Mm. And um, make this kind of my life's path. So, but I think that early skepticism that you had was is pretty normal and and probably healthy too. There's a lot of like snake oil type of stuff in this area, and and I'm curious like how you figured out you know how to how to parse the the things that were actually helping you and and what especially when you're making such a big change. Like I always come at it personally from a very scientific standpoint where I'm like testing different things if I'm making a change to my diet, but sometimes you need to like go all in. Yeah, no, it's funny you say that because I have a theory that like anyone born in New Jersey is a natural skeptic and like we tend to be very sarcastic, very skeptical. Um, it gets me in trouble with my family sometimes. I'm pretty good at t- toning it down <laughs> in the rest of my world, but um, <laughs> but 
But it's so no, to your point, I mean, I was very skeptical. Like I said, I don't, I just think if I hadn't reached that point where I was just so uncomfortable and I had gotten no answers from Western medicine, I probably would not have even tried some of the things, which, which by the way, I didn't really do anything that would be considered snake oil, right? I just changed my diet. I drank more water. I stopped drinking soda and process and eating processed foods. And yeah. I, I took really basic steps that I think are pretty common knowledge nowadays. But um, at the time, it definitely felt like snake oil. And what I gleaned from that was a combination of two things, right? Like cross-referencing data and data points from different sources to validate them. If you're just going to go by what you're reading or what you're processing is a great first step. But in my life, especially at that age, I did a lot of kind of personal experiments, right? Like I would take some chlorella for six months and see how I feel. And I also realized early on that natural wellness, you know, reading, reading about natural living and natural wellness, the common theme or thread was that it takes time. It's not a fast fix. It's not a magic bullet pill that you're going to take and suddenly correct all of the issues that maybe you've, you've been feeding for 20 years. At that point, um, you really need to build your foundation, build a, build a habit of health, and then let it unfold for you and not think, well, I tried being plant-based for a week and it didn't work, you know, or I stopped eating McDonald's for a few days and I didn't feel any different, right? Like your body has to go through this whole detoxification period and then this rebuilding and you have to give it the tools and resources, which in this case are just whole foods and, you know, fruits and vegetables and clean water and probiotics and some other foundational foods and then evaluate. Um, so that was something that kind of got drilled into me. I didn't start seeing results from my radical changes for about six months, but everyone I talked to was like, yeah, it's going to take some time. Like you're in pretty bad shape actually. So you're not going to just start taking acidophilus and feel better in a couple of days. Like this, you have to rebuild your whole system and you're going to feel worse before you feel better too, which was something that I think a lot of people have a hard time accepting um, that when you start kind of detoxing and you're going to feel a little worse if you've been doing having negative habits, you're going to feel worse before you feel better because your body may have some form of addiction when that sounds like an extreme word, but um, that's kind of what bodies do, right? They adapt to what you give them and they either thrive on it or they suffer on it. And, you know, if you listen to your body, you can really get those signals and, and correct it. What led you from the juice bar to Whole Foods? So that that was a natural evolution for me because, like I said, I, I'm a super passionate person. When I do anything, I do it all in. And again, it can be a blessing and a curse, right? Because I just have that drive when I love something. When that epiphany light bulb went off for me where I said, you know what, this is my career. I need to get this word out. Like it, for me, it felt like a responsibility to reach more people. Well, first of all, too, I didn't really want to be in Boston for my whole life or in New England. I knew I wanted to be out West. And so Boulder, Colorado at the time was this beacon of the natural products industry. And, you know, Wild Oats and Alfalfas was started there. There was so much consciousness around natural living. So for me, there was this draw of like, okay, I'm not going to build a career at a little apothecary in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I need to go to a bigger stage and really figure out where I want to go with this. And I moved out to Boulder with this idea of potentially creating more stores or, or being an entrepreneur and creating 
businesses similar to Harnett's where I was. But um, at the time, you know, this is again, the, the early 90s, the climate was much different than it is now in terms of raising capital and being an entrepreneur. So I quickly realized as a young, young kid, um, yeah, you need capital to do some of these things. And um, like I said, at the top, I wasn't from a wealthy family or anything. So Whole Foods was actually opening their first store in Boulder, Colorado, which was very big news in our industry back then because it was Wild Oats and Alfalfa's territory. And Whole Foods had no business coming into Boulder was kind of the general consensus. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about that because like the vibe. So I actually I went to college in um, Colorado in in Colorado Springs in a little like liberal arts school. there called Colorado College um, and they had a Whole Foods there. But this was this was 2003, I guess. And in Boulder was kind of on my radar as that kind of place like you described. And I'm curious because Whole Foods was already, you know, 15 years old or something, but it was nowhere near like the scale of what it became um, and what it is what it is now. And, and I'm curious if you can kind of describe what the vibe was there uh, at the time. Yeah, I mean, it was when we were opening the Boulder Whole Foods store, we felt like foreigners. I mean, we didn't think that the community would actually be receptive. We thought that we were setting ourselves up to fail. I mean, we were we were all in and we were working. I was literally working 80 hours a week to get that store open, as with many of my colleagues who are still, many of them, dear friends. And we were working our butts off trying to make the most amazing store for the community there. But we were told over and over. How many stores did Whole Foods have overall at that point? Um, back then it was, gosh, it was in the hundreds. So it was like 130 stores or somewhere around there. So, okay. um, and most of that was kind of through acquisition. Like I mentioned, Bread and Circus and Mrs. Gooch's on the West Coast. And so they had kind of built a, a pretty good model, but Colorado was untouchable. Hmm. It was quite amazing though, because we were building to this opening day thinking no one was going to show up. I mean, literally. And um, we had a pretty small parking lot. We had only like four or five registers. And the morning of opening, you know, the whole store was there because we were just like, we all have to be here for opening day. This is so exciting. But all throughout the community was like, yeah, we like Wild Oats. And then suddenly the morning of opening, we were opening, I think, at eight. And we had lines, like the whole front of the store was mobbed with people waiting to get in. And we were all just kind of looking at each other going, okay, this is not what we thought was going to happen. And it was really exciting. And we immediately had to remodel the store and remodel the parking lot and start talking to our neighboring businesses to like see if we could acquire some parking space from them and also apologize to them because we were overrunning their area. And, you know, so it was quite chaotic, um, but really wildly successful and led to tremendous growth for Whole Foods. And a number of the people from that opening team went on to do incredible things in their careers. And um, I felt really, really blessed to be where I was at that time and, and be part of that like, event, if you will. What was your role there? What were you, what were you doing with uh, the opening? Well, it's funny. <laughs> Again, I feel like we're talking about me way too much here, but I did not get hired the first time I went to the hiring office, the hiring office was across the street on Pearl Street from where the store would open. And they turned me down. Um, and they literally, somebody came to the door of the hiring office and was like, yeah, we're not hiring. I just said, no, I'm going to work here. So I kept coming back. 
And on the second or third time, somebody took pity on me and was like, well, the juice bar is hiring. So they might hire you, you know, let, let me, let me connect you with the juice bar manager. He actually took pity on me and was like, sure, I'll hire you. We need people. And so I ended up working at the juice bar, but then I kind of begged my way into the health and beauty department. And I told them like, Hey, I'll work the juice bar, but then I'll come over here and work here after I work at the juice bar. And that's how I ended up working like 80 hour weeks because I really wanted to be in health and beauty. Um, that was my passion at the time. And um, so it worked out quite well, but it was it was a funny, funny story because I almost didn't get hired at Whole Foods. And then I went on to be the executive global coordinator for health and beauty <laughs> one day in the future. But What made it possible for Whole Foods to kind of enter that market and have such a good reception? I mean, I think as humans, right, we tend to resist change. And we also tend to think the way it's always been is the way it always will be. And so in Boulder, it was wild oats and alfalfas, like those were the markets and they had kind of a stranglehold on natural and organic in the community and they were respected and liked and it was a good experience. I mean, I used to shop there when I first moved to Boulder because our store didn't exist yet. So I think it was a combination of just skepticism around like this company from Texas coming up to Colorado and by the way, that rivalry still exists, right? Like that's still, you still hear that when you're in Colorado. And I just think there was this concept of like, oh, Whole Foods is the big corporate company and they're going to come in here and we're going to stay loyal to wild oats and alfalfas because they're, they're who we are. And, and we, that's what we kept hearing. And so I think we were just intimidated and also humble, you know, like, hey, we're just going to work hard and do what we're doing because we were you know, we were doing it with good intention. And yeah, what advantages did Whole Foods have that that made it, you know, work in that community? You know, I think alfalfas and wild oats at the time had no competition. So the pricing was pretty outrageous in Boulder. And so Whole Foods was able to come in and definitely compete on price and drive prices down both at wild oats and at Whole Foods in the market. And then you had natural grocers too, which was known as vitamin cottage back then. But they were getting into food more. And so they were driving price. And so it created a great environment for the customer because the customer got really great pricing and was able to really shop competitively. And then also Whole Foods, really, it was at a time in their culture where they were leaning into prepared foods and like all they call it in the grocery world, the perimeter, right? So produce, seafood, mean seafood, prepared foods. So they put in a pizza bar, they put in a cafe, they put in a, a sandwich bar, they put in the juice bar, they had a seating area in the front of the store. And um, so it was almost like this, um, John Mack used to call it the third place, right? So yeah. it was like homework, and then the, the store that you wanted to go to and spend your time in. And the Boulder store really nailed that for the Boulder community. Well, when I was in college and I went to the Whole Foods they had in Colorado Springs, it was really big. And I came from, I grew up in France. And so like, it was like the biggest grocery store I had ever seen. But also I remember (laughs) as a starving college student, like they had all of these free samples in every aisle. And it, it was like, not just we were going there to grab some like interesting ingredients that were, you know, expensive for us, but also that we could get a meal out of it, basically. Because <laughs> there were so many things there to try. Yeah, no, it's so true. It's so true. And, and, and you know, and that was intentional, right? I mean, I think we knew 
even up to like 10 years ago, my family would tell me like, I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing with your career, but I can't afford to shop at Whole Foods or I can't, I don't know any of those brands, so I'm not going to buy them. And so the sampling that you're talking about was this idea that like, hey, this food that we're selling is really, really good. So try it. And once you try it, you're probably going to love it because it's really clean. It tastes good. It makes you feel better than kind of mass market junk food. So even if you're buying a chip at Whole Foods, it's probably going to make you feel better than if you were buying a mass market brand. So so yeah, I mean, we were very passionate about sampling and the sample bowls were all over the store. And it was something that we really leaned into back back then. How did you make the jump from this like regional store to the bigger kind of like corporate, you know, uh, office and kind of being part of the the more overall strategy of the company? Yeah, I was super fortunate because um, I not only did we open the first Whole Foods store in Colorado, but we also at the time acquired a nutritional supplement manufacturer in Colorado. So right in Gun Barrel. And so we got this deep training and they would go on to make Whole Foods private label brands um, of supplements and, and wellness products. So I happened to be at that place at the right time. And we were able to go from our store over to this manufacturer and get all this training and education. And at the time, um, Whole Foods has always been decentralized. So there are different regions. And at the time, my regional coordinator for health and beauty became one of my, you know, I always say Anthony Harnett was my first mentor. And then my regional coordinator at the time, her name was Chris Taylor. She became a mentor of mine and she kind of took a liking to me and would bring me down to the, the regional meetings down in Austin, Texas. And you know, just let me pick her brain. And, and she was brilliant when it came to business and category management. And, um, but I also, <laughs> being from New Jersey, I complained a lot about our private label. And, you know, at the time, we tried to take the products of the, the company that we bought and just slap our label on them and put them into our stores. And it wasn't right. Like, they weren't the right formulas. They were not the right sizes. They weren't labeled right. They didn't have the right names. And I complained constantly <laughs> about that because um, I was on the floor selling them to customers and it was really bothersome. And so my regional coordinator and mentor, Chris, went over to manage the private label brands. And she came into my store one day. Um, I'll never forget because it changed my career. But she came into my store and said, hey, you always complain so much about private label. Why don't you come over? and be the brand manager and fix it. And, you know, you got to remember, I'm still pretty young and I was a retail person. I mean, I still consider myself a retailer in many ways. And I was floored. I, first first thought was, I can't do that. Like, <laughs> that's not, I'm not capable of doing that. Like, and, you know, I think I probably said that to her and she's like, yes, you are. You have more energy for this and more passion than, than anybody I know. And, you know what needs to happen to fix this. So come do it. We need your perspective from the store level and the customer level. And so at that time, I, I switched teams and became the marketing manager for the Whole Foods and 365 private label brands. And um, it was pretty exciting. We took the brand from 9 million to over 100 million in a very short amount of time and you know, really revolutionized the formulas. Um, we had some incredible team members that helped on the science side and helped on the branding side and helped, you know, on the logistics sides of getting products to market. And so I got a deep education on that level and then, you know, scaled from there on that side of the business 
and did that for a really long time, actually. And then, um, and then ended up, there was a position at the global office. For the record, from the moment I started at Whole Foods, my dream job was to be the, the global coordinator for health and beauty at Whole Foods. It was just something I saw that role and I thought, wow, I would love to do that. And it just so happened that the associate role came open at the global office in Austin. And I made a pretty big, again, a big life decision to just take a chance. And at the time I had a small young daughter. I had one one daughter at the time and we moved from Arizona actually to Austin and went backwards again in my career. Took some took a pay cut and became the assistant global coordinator. And then shortly thereafter, within about a year, was the uh, executive global coordinator for health and beauty, which was super exciting. So I keep thinking about what you were talking about with the, uh, it's funny that complaining can be a superpower. Like, and I think it's like someone who really sees the problems. Hopefully you can turn that into solving that problem and not just complaining about it. But I'm curious if you've seen that now, you know, having hired many people for different teams, like, do you look for that type of person who (laughs) is the one who is able to see all the problems? I learned um, early, I I think part of it was growing up in like, you know, a more poor family. And like, I was the only child at the time, and it made you like, sensitive. So I complained a lot. But I was also sensitive to the fact that if you just complain, then people kind of look at you as a complainer, right? Like, so you have to, you can complain, but you better have a solution baked in too, or you better be thinking about what needs to change to make it better. And to your point, I learned early on that it didn't work professionally to just simply complain. You had to like actually have some ideas around what the solution could be. And so, yeah, to your point, and that's a great segue to Thrive because I always tell people we're a yes company and we're a solution company. And so we have a culture at Thrive, the culture I hire for is what's the solution? And we kind of say when we're hiring at Thrive now, even we're six plus years old or seven, almost seven years old. And we know we're not perfect still. We, we've been very much in startup mode. And we often tell people when we're interviewing, like, hey, we don't have it all figured out yet. <laughs> like, We have a lot of great foundation to build on and we know what we're doing, but we need a lot of help still. We need people who are going to come in and identify the problems and then more importantly, come up with the solutions and help us build the way it should be for long-term success so that we're truly sustainable and I definitely think that's a super important hiring trait, if you will, um, to think of people who can look critically, but also come with solutions. When you first started working with the founders of Thrive, it seemed like one of the problems that you described was, I, I guess it's pretty much related to price and that and that there was this idea of a group buying club. And I mean, I think Costco is maybe the, you know, kind of company that a lot of people think of that has this membership model. What was that the main problem that you were interested in solving or were there other problems that you saw about kind of the the way the industry was that you felt um, could be solved at Thrive? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the main problem was accessibility, right? So, and accessibility in our minds, came from two primary factors. One was price. Um, Historically, natural and organic products are more expensive, and it makes it prohibitive for people on a budget. And, you know, interestingly enough, Gnar, um, one of our co-founders, also 
comes from like a broken family and single mom who had to work really hard. And so he and I ha- had that in common and really understand the barriers because um, that's our family, right? So solving for that first and foremost and creating an environment where we could bring pricing down on these products that are ironically the products that people who um, are poor need the most, right? Like you need nutrient dense, high quality food um, or else yeah. you're never going to get out of poverty. And then the other piece was ge- geography. I mean, still to this day, we receive hundreds of love letters from members saying, I live in rural Montana or I live in Northern Idaho or I live in Kansas or I live in Georgia in a, in a county where there's no health food store. There's no Whole Foods. There's nothing. I have to shop for food at a gas station or at a Target. And my choices are so limited, especially if you're on a special diet, um, like you have celiac or um, you're plant-based or you're trying paleo or keto to lose weight, or you just simply don't have access to the level of quality of and the types of foods that you need. So that was the big one. But the second one was how overwhelming it can be. Um, you know, you mentioned your experience in Colorado Springs and going in there as, as a poor college student, but also just looking at, you know, 50,000 items in the store, right? which are mostly brands that don't have the big marketing budgets. Of course, now they do more than ever, but even still, they don't have the marketing budgets to educate and bring awareness to their brands. And Subsequently, the average consumer is looking at it like, what is this brand? I've never heard of them. Are they credible? Are they good? And then why are there 15 different peanut butters? Like, what one do I even buy? Like, why is this one organic and this one's not? And this one's sugar and this one doesn't have sugar and this one has monk fruit. What the hell is monk fruit? Like, you know, so all these different decision trees that happen. And and when you're standing there looking at them, you get confused and you want to walk away. So part of what we do at Thrive and what we've done from the beginning was this idea that like, hey, we're going to hire the absolute best experts for the different categories that we sell to our members. And then we're going to curate the products for our members so that we pick the best in class that hit all the value attributes we know our members are looking for. And we don't have anything else. Um, We don't have a lot of noise. We don't just keep piling on brands and products into categories so that it gets overwhelming and confusing. And I think for a lot of people coming in, especially if you get diagnosed with an illness or you have a special diet, it makes it so much easier to be able to have a, a, a more limited but super high quality yet affordable offering. And then also the other thing we did was create these 90 different or 90 to 100 different shoppable values. So you can just easily sort yeah. for your special diet or for your lifestyle or for, you know, even your, you know, your interests. Maybe you're looking for a BIPOC brand or a woman-owned brand. or So just giving people the ability to quickly sort and quickly find what they want and not be overwhelmed with a myriad of redundant choices, if you will. Yeah. And, and when you started at, at Thrive, e-commerce, you know, in general, had to be a, a, a big part of it because I don't think Whole Foods uh, really had e-commerce until Amazon acquired them. Um, and some of the things that you're describing around accessibility of, you know, shipping to these different locations, as well as how do you filter and sort ingre- like foods, basically, seems like a, a thing that you can do online in a, in a much different way than you would in a store if you're trying to 
<laughs> you can only sort your products one way in a store, you know, by by aisle. And then uh, once you do that, you can't, you know, I mean, you might change them around, but people kind of expect the function of a of a retail store to be in a certain way. Whereas online, maybe you can merchandise things in many more different ways. What were some of the things about e-commerce that, uh, that, that made it interesting or that opened up new possibilities there? Yeah, it's such a, you made all the, all the strong points there. I mean, it's definitely, um, a couple of things. One, what you're talking about, it's important for people to understand has this ripple effect all the way down to, you know, the farm level, if you will. So, you know, big CPG and mass market grocery controls how products come to market. And so there's a finite amount of shelf space and all the products kind of have to look the same, right? Because grocers and, and CPG brands are dictating that, hey, all peanut butter should be in this kind of jar. It should, it can't be any taller than, you know, X inches. And it, can't be any smaller than this. It has to fit. It has to look the same. And by the way, we have only two shelves and four feet. So it has to fit in there. And if it doesn't fit in there, we're not going to sell it. So you get a lot of conformity and you don't get a lot of innovation um, in brick and mortar because you just can't. So like you have to fit your products in and, and brands are kind of held to that standard, if you will. So with e-commerce, we're able to get really creative around the types of packaging, which, you know, leads to, I know some of the other things we're going to talk about, which is we're not constrained to the convention of brick and mortar. So we can make more ecologically friendly choices. We can change the sizing up so that it's more in line with what our members actually want. And then to your point, we also have great data because we are able to see how our members are shopping, what they're what they're asking for, what they're searching for, but we maybe don't have, we call it search not found. So we get all these data points that I, I always make the joke, like I would have loved to have known this. <laughs> like when a, when a customer walked in my aisles when I was working in the health food store, I would have loved to have known, like here's what they're searching for. Here's what they're, they're looking at the shelf for, but not seeing. Like it would have made my life so much easier in terms of getting the right product offering for the member instead, or for the customer, instead, it would take this really long life cycle, right? Because you'd have to wait for people to shop, and then you'd have to analyze the data, and then you'd have to go back and work with your suppliers and try to make change. Whereas in the e-commerce world, we're able to do that really rapidly, and we're able to respond to what our members are asking us for almost immediately, like as fast as we can find products that meet our standards and that we know our members will love we can plug them in and we don't have kind of the perils of distribution networks and shelf space and planograms and, and all of those challenges that brick and mortar stores have to, to put, bring my products to market and, and to get them onto the shelf. I, I love what you said about uh, like the peanut butter uh, example. And I think that as more and more um, purchasing is moving online, this is something at, Lumi word like constant. <laughs> this is literally our day to day, every day thinking about this problem. But brands are, you know, wanting to design for this e commerce first experience. But then, you know, especially if you're a CPG brand, you kind of need to have more than one channel. And so then are you going to design different form factors for retail versus online? How are you going to do that? Online gives you so many more options in terms of how to tell a story than you can fit on a tiny label. And I'm curious, maybe this is where 
private label for you comes into the picture because you have like total control over that and you don't have to sell it in stores. What are the types of like form factor or labeling or anything innovations that you're thinking about there that really are something that basically you could not sell in the current retail environment? Yeah, it's a great question. But one thing you mentioned I did want to touch on briefly was you mentioned just the ability to share content and the ability to share, I mean, in brick and mortar, you have a finite amount of space, either a label or a small sign. You, you can't have too much noise. To your point, in e-commerce, we're able to really do a lot of education. We often make that joke at Thrive that we're a content company that also sells food um, because yeah. we really are passionate about delivering information about diets and recipes and lifestyle and how to live a healthier life. And then, oh yeah, if it happens to lead to sales of products, great, but we're more interested in fulfilling this mission of like really educating and giving people information about healthier living. So it's a funny, funny thing with e-commerce versus brick and mortar. One of my favorite early examples was we try to stock everything our members could possibly want to make healthy meals at home, right? So one example would be canned beans. And so we uh, early on brought in canned black beans, canned pinto beans, garbanzo beans, all of the beans in cans. And we quickly realized as an e-commerce company that they were really ineffective in terms of costs. And we were losing money virtually with every order we shipped with canned beans because they're really heavy. Um, they mm. tend to cause a lot of damage in boxes. Like, you know, somebody orders six cans of beans and they're bouncing around in an order with bags of chips and other items. They do a lot of damage. And and then it leads to other problems, right? Where you're, you're overpacking them or you're piling on waste to try to make it so that doesn't happen. So we honestly, this was going back six plus years ago, we thought, let's just stop selling beans because like, like we, we can't do this. We're a startup. We're going to fail here. And at the same time, we started looking at our Thrive Market brand and like, how do we innovate here? What's the solution? And um, happened to meet a supplier who was able to do wet beans in pouches. And interestingly enough, the way they're packaged, they actually retain more moisture than canned beans. So they not only are a more effective, more efficient e-commerce product, but they're also better quality and they taste better than beans out of a can. So, and they don't get smushed in, the tra in transit? Exactly. And they don't get dented. They don't cause damage. So that was one of the first examples where we had to innovate. We were forced to innovate to give... Uh, our members the products they wanted because by the way as we were trying to make that decision we did a bunch of analysis around do our members really want beans and and what we found was yeah like overwhelmingly <laughs> they were buying those products from us they were in a lot of baskets they wanted them so it was an example though of where there was no way that like a whole foods or one of the big cpg or mass market retailers was going to actually bring in beans in pouches and change their whole display when they've got four feet of cans. So. Well, and I think what, what you're saying just flows also into the contract manufacturers and private label like manufacturers that you work with, because, uh, you know, we encountered this problem at Lumi where we were helping uh, a company <laughs> now defunct, unfortunately, called Brandless, who had a very similar problem that they were the example that we would think about the most was chips and salsa, like if you're trying to ship chips and salsa to someone in the mail, you know, you've got a bag of, of 
very uh, easy, like fragile, um, breakable chips. Um, and then you've got like the common format being a glass jar of, you know, heavy <laughs> sauce. How do you put these two items in a box without uh, either of them breaking? You know, if you're just on the other end of it as a consumer, you know, you're putting these things in your cart, not thinking about the logistics of it. Totally. No, I know. It's, um, and I have to give a major shout out to our fulfillment center teams. Like they do such an incredible job with that. I've been to the facilities and seen they segregate those products away from everything else. They call it the crush zone or they used to. Um, and then they, actually do such an amazing job. You know, you can call it like playing Tetris, right? Like they put everything perfectly in the boxes and then they have process around all of that where it's like, hey, if someone orders three bags of chips and three bags of salsa or three jars of salsa, make sure you pack them this way and make sure you secure them so that they won't move around and the chips go on top with a layer on top of them so they don't get smashed. And it's pretty incredible. And um, we spend a lot of time. We have whole groups that, that analyze that and analyze how things are shipped and trying to make sure it, it arrives perfectly. And oh, by the way, still be a, a net zero waste company. So using all recyclable materials to pack the products, minimizing the packing material as much as they can. Uh, so it's kind of like that, you know, you know, probably from your work and, and the studies you've done, it's, you're kind of trying to do the impossible, <laughs> which is, deliver a perfect experience while also being environmentally responsible and, and really nailing all those checkboxes too. So it's a yeoman's job that they do every day. Can't appreciate those teams enough. What are some other um, innovations or things that you've learned about how to either like package these products or sell them online that I guess would only be possible in this like digital environment? You know, I think back to the content side, I think it's really important to note that, you know, we can really educate our members and give our members a lot of content about specific ingredients or products or diet and lifestyle. And we can really help accelerate growth on new and innovative ingredients in a, in a way that is really challenging in brick and mortar. I mean, you, you can do promotions, you can do sampling in the aisles, things like that, but you simply can't get into the level of detail that we can in our blog or in email content and really highlighting new items and new innovation from our branded partners the way we can in e-commerce. I mean, that may sound kind of boring, but I think that's like the, that to me, that's one of the biggest unlocks around e-commerce is just this ability to communicate directly with your customer and really educate and, and bring people awareness to new new products, new ingredients, new lifestyle, new diet, things they can really benefit from that in the past, you'd rely on someone like me standing in an aisle who maybe you would meet, right? And maybe you would have that conversation or maybe you would Google something or see an article about something, but you wouldn't get it from a trusted source kind of delivered to your inbox, if you will. Yeah, an example that comes to mind is actually, I don't know if you know this company, Brightland. Uh, we had them on uh, the podcast, I think it was episode 86 they make an olive oil and there's so much you can say about an olive oil through videos and like and recipes and examples of how to use it that you could never fit on a label. And so they're, you know, an e-commerce first olive oil brand. When if you go to a retail store and go to the olive oil aisle, uh, you're going to see all of these labels that are telling you about 
where it's from, what kind of flavor profile it has, like all of this kind of information about whatever they can pack on that label. But if you look at the Brightland bottle, because they don't have to do any of that work, like the label doesn't have to do any of that work, it's just plain. And now that thing looks like an object that you want to have in your kitchen because it, it, it doesn't have to do all of that work. All of that can be offloaded to the website. 100%. Yeah, totally. The other point that you mentioned around kind of like values and those filters, like that was something that from using Thrive early on, I noticed right away. And you you went straight for like some of those more narrow diets that people, you know, maybe they're not like <laughs> extremely widely adopted. Like I think, you know, keto was a, a diet that, I mean, now is obviously quite popular, but these new diets come about every few years and people discover them. It seems like you're often, you know, among the first to adopt kind of that language and try to educate people about what the benefits might be and, and how to find the right products that fit that diet. How do you stay on top of that? And what makes the cut from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, historically, it's a really interesting point, because we early on when we first launched, we leaned heavily into paleo, raw and vegan. Um, we just knew that those those diet trends were here to stay because we knew they had a lot of legs and a lot of strength. They were scientifically proven. They were anecdotally proven. Um, but interestingly enough, and this has been pretty well documented in, in the media in the past, our early investment strategy was working with influencers. And some of them were some of the thought leaders for some of those special diets. And so we had this really kind of mutual love affair where we would stock products that our influencers love to talk about and share with their audience. And then conversely, you know, our members, they would subsequently become members and it created this virtuous circle where we just built upon that. So then as we evolved, we realized, you know, that people were coming to us specifically with special dietary needs. And to your point, we, I, th I think I mentioned it earlier, but we really monitor our search not found results. And we really monitor our comments. We really, um, we have a whole member services team that we run. I think something that sets Thrive apart that we kind of gloss over or people assume, the average consumer probably assumes every company is like this, but we're totally vertical. So everything you experience with Thrive Market are actual teams of Thrivers. They're people that work for us. Like we don't outsource our customer service. We don't outsource these things. So it, we get all of that feedback directly and uh, we listen to it and we realize early on, like we're a membership club model. Our members are single most important part of our business and they tell us what they want. Like when we see traffic uptick in like Whole30 approved, for example, and, and, um, or keto to your point or uh, low FODMAP, um, some of the emerging, emerging diets, we, lean into them quickly because we know our members, if we're seeing enough traction that multiple members are asking for these products or searching for them, then we know there's traction there and we try to respond quickly and just lean in because again, we're not over skewed. So we don't have, you know, 10,000 items we can't take on anymore. Um, it affords us the ability to be nimble and really react to what our customers want. And it also really helps us form some really deep, innovative farm supply chain partnerships because we're not held to, you know, if a farmer has a bad year or 
a bad crop, we're okay, right? Like we're not going to lose. We didn't reserve shelf space for something that didn't happen and it ruins our whole distribution network, if you will. So we're able to form really patient partnerships with farmers. We're able to do a lot of innovation, lean into regenerative organic, lean into you know more ethical sourcing with small farms, big farms. So it's, it has this interesting byproduct being nimble and small and not being confined to some of the conventions of traditional retail. Yeah, I want. I would love to explore that uh, some more because I think in the beginning, Thrive was mostly just probably being a startup. It made sense, but mostly dry goods and like sort of uh, pantry staples and those types of things. And and then over time, you've started to expand more into fresh foods and meats and seafood and those types of things. Like that is a big transition because you're also going into like cold chain questions and all the that kind of uh, stuff as well. But I'm assuming that especially with a membership model, you know, it becomes more and more worth it to become a member if you can do more and more of your shopping there. So I'm curious how you think about that expansion process. Yeah, I mean, I know our founders and our board are passionate that we fulfill all the needs, right? So we be a full service offering for our members. We've broadened into meat and seafood. We also broadened into frozen meals. Um, We have a number of other innovative products coming on the frozen side that are pretty exciting. You know, long term, we definitely look at other other elements of fresh too, and and whether it's produce or dairy. We had plans to actually be more aggressive in expanding into some of those categories several years ago, but we we quickly realized this: we were providing such a great service, even in non-perishable, and we wanted to really be good at what we were doing and really provide an excellent member experience and get products to people's homes faster so that they could rely on us and became ever more important during the pandemic. But so it gave us a a kind of a nice runway or or a luxury, I guess, to to be able to really refine and nail our core business model, which was non-perishable before we got into frozen meat and seafood. And um, it also like really helped us flex that muscle to be able to know our standards, know what our members wanted from us, know we needed to constantly raise the bar, which we've done on meat and seafood, you know, with fully grass-fed beef and with regenerative organic pork from farms and fully sustainable MSC certified seafood and really raising the bar across the board for our members. And we hear that a lot, by the way, is like we hear from our members, we want, you know, dairy products the way Thrive would do it. And that's such a humbling, like, honor to hear hear people describe it that way, right? Like we want it the way you guys would do it because we know it'll be the best quality and the most ethically sourced and the most mindfully sourced. So so it's coming, it's all coming. It's just a matter <laughs> of sequencing and timing and <laughs> making sure we can really do it right, right? I and mean, that's something that we're passionate about is like not getting out over our skis or trying to lean into something just to say we did it. Um, we really want to get it right. Um, and not, not just on the product side, right? Like it's... Um, I have a saying with our team, which is, you know, we're on a mission and the mission is, you know, providing access to healthier products, but we don't want to solve that problem and create a number of other problems in the supply chain, like whether it's not paying people fairly or whether it's, you know, using cheap ingredients or forsaking farmers just to get cheap things to market. Like we don't want to do any of that. We want to do it 100% right, which means it's going to be slower, right? Like it's not going to be a fast process often. It's going to take time and 
but it's always going to be done right. And that's, that's our goal. Maybe you've answered this already, but what, when you put your New Jersey uh, skeptic complainer hat on right now, like what are the things that you're seeing that you want to improve, whether it's at Thrive or in the industry that, I don't know, things that are bugging you right now? You know, I think internally for Thrive, and we're working on this, so um, so <laughs> maybe it's partly my complaining, but I think it's more just the goals of the company. But I think the biggest thing is like, how do we get products to people's homes faster and in better condition always, right? Like I said earlier, we have whole teams that are focused on that. Um, and then we're also opening a third fulfillment center now. We're looking at a couple other locations uh, around the U.S. so that we can continue to shorten the amount of time that it takes to get people their products. Not only is it important for our members, but we have a lot of competition there. So, yeah. um, you know, that's been my biggest gripe. I live, I live in Austin, Texas, and my orders take, you know, three to four days. And that's not a lot of time, but when you're planning for a family and you're trying to make sure you have everything to make meals, like you have to plan ahead and that's not always easy for people to do. So the faster we can get products to people, the, the better it will be. So that's probably my biggest gripe, but I know we're actively working on it. So probably any thrivers that are listening to this will be like rolling their eyes right now. Like we know we're doing it. <laughs> what was your, what was your reaction to Amazon acquiring Whole Foods, both as like, you know, a, an alum of Whole Foods and at, you know, being part of Thrive now? Like I mentioned too, I am a natural products lifer. And so I was a big believer in the original Whole Foods vision and now Thrive picking up the torch, which is the more people that have access to these products, the better we'll be. Um, I truly believe in organic agriculture and I believe in removing unnecessary additives and artificial ingredients from food and moving back to the way nature intended. And so part of me says, wow, this is great. You know, like more people will now be able to shop for natural and organic products than ever before because Amazon's so ubiquitous and people can get these products. And the flip side is like, obviously there's always sacrifices as, as you scale. And that's something we've tried to be really mindful at Thrive is not making those sacrifices and building out sustainable, responsible supply chains and, and methodologies so that we don't have to make those compromises. But when you get to the size of a Walmart or an Amazon or, you know, you inherently have to make compromises to your quality standards, to your goals, to your ambitions. And it's been pretty well documented in the media and around the world, just the impact that big CPG brands have on retailers and, you know, that that kind of inequity that exists for small brands trying to trying to get innovative products to market when these big brands are paying retailers like Amazon, Whole Foods, and Walmart, and Target, and they're paying tons and tons of millions of marketing dollars to secure space and promote. And so it makes it really hard for true innovation to happen and also responsibility. So, and, and that line between greenwashing and doing it because you're really motivated to do it for the right reasons becomes pretty blurry. So for me, those are like the kind of ethical challenges of it. You know, I have tons of friends that are also Whole Foods alums and I stay in touch with a lot of them. And we have these conversations oftentimes, like when we connect and, you know, we feel like it has slipped a little bit in terms of the quality and the oversight and maybe the focus that we had when we were there um, and the passion and the energy in the stores 
um, just doesn't feel the same. And I think part of that is because they've centralized a lot more process than when we were in the stores. And when we were even in the global and regional offices, it was still pretty decentralized when we were there. But with Amazon acquiring the business, they definitely pulled resources at the global office and, and really have made those teams huge. And like they have floors of category managers, whereas when, I, when we were doing it, it was a handful of us. So it, it definitely, it's going to happen, right? You're going to lose part of, your, part of your soul, part of your core when you get that big. What's your method for maintaining those standards that thrive, especially as you grow and, you know, you hire more people and you can't be making every decision? Like, do you have a an approach to that of kind of how to maintain those standards as the as the company grows? We have everything published, right? So everybody, all of our category managers, all of our product innovators, they have the list, right? They know what's what our standards are. It's very clear. Um, and it's just, it's a non-negotiable, right? So we, we won't compromise. We're singularly focused on our culture. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's a really unique element of the company. And I think it does lead to that more passionate engagement and just a group of people who really care. Um, I know yesterday, it's Tuesday while we're recording this. And yesterday was Monday and we do our all company um, weekly business review. And and uh, Nick, our CEO, said, happy Monday. And he's like, I think we're the only company that celebrates Monday, not Friday, because everyone's just excited and excited for the week and to hear about how the week went the previous week. And um, so there's a lot of energy um, in the company because of that culture. And so for us, we've made it like this non-negotiable that we're going to maintain our culture. We're going to maintain our quality we're going to keep asking the questions. We can't mess up. It's not an option. Like we're not going to ignore. Uh, we're not going to say like, oh, well, we didn't ask that question that time. In addition, we have a quality assurance team uh, in place and food safety team. And so we're doing all kinds of incremental audits and questionnaires and follow-ups with our suppliers, both branded and and our private brand sourcing. So it's something that we've just built rigor around um, from day one. And we just continue to kind of propagate that culture as we scale. Are, are you familiar with Y Combinator? I am v- very briefly, very limited, but yeah. It's not that important, but they do this thing. So it's an incubator for startups and lots of startups go through this kind of like accelerator program. But um, they have this thing that they do once in a while called request for startup, where they they are saying, here are some of the trends and themes that we're seeing. And we would like startups to be built around these things. We would love to accept more companies into our accelerator that do this. And I feel like the CPG space is so ripe for innovation with this like intersection of there's finally, especially with like some of the trends that have been accelerated over the past like 12 months, there's enough volume happening now through online sales channel that you can try new formats, new innovations for CPG products that previously wouldn't have had enough like throughput or volume going on through those channels. And I, I wonder if you thought about that, like what are the things that you wish other companies who are, you know, products that you could sell on Thrive would be doing if you could, if you could put a request for <laughs> startups out there? No, it's awesome. It's a great question. And I was kind of smiling here. I know we're on audio, so you couldn't see me, but um, we kind of do that every day. Uh, if I'm being honest, like we, um, that's that's kind of our mantra. 
That's great. It is great, but at, back to my point earlier, it just means everything takes more time. So, so I guess the, the efficiency we gain from not being brick and mortar, we kind of lose in that process, but we also ultimately deliver a greater, greater value to our members, right? So, but literally every interaction we have with our category managers and our product innovators on our merchandising team, those are the questions they're asking. So they're, saying whether it's getting a product submission and then saying like, hey, why did you guys add cane sugar? Have you thought about alternative sweeteners to make this sugar free? Or why why is that ingredient not organic? Have you, you know, if it's organic, why is it not regenerative? Or are you? And you're just not calling that out. Like, so we're constantly doing that real-time innovation. And then we're also reaching out to people we know. Um, one great example is we just worked on a co-collaboration for a brand called Good Sam. Um, and it's a chocolate brand that is the first ever regenerative, um, plant-based, sugar-free, direct source cacao chocolate brand. Mm. And we launched that um, exclusively on Thrive Market and we co-developed it with the founders. But it was a need that we saw, which was some brands were you know, vegan, if you will. Some brands were fair trade. Some were organic, some were sugar-free, but nobody was doing it in one place and nobody was delivering that experience to the customer. And But we're constantly doing that where we're saying like, how can we make this keto? Or is there a brand that's currently making conventional pasta that we could work on an alternative flour, grain-free pasta with? And we'll just reach out and say like, hey, we have demand for this. Would you be willing to innovate this with us? And so also we're launching tons of really cool brands. We launched a, a brand called Positive on the frozen meal side um, that's super innovative, chef-created, really high-quality, tasty food. And they kind of found us. And and they were doing like prepared foods for takeout in, in the LA area. And then with the pandemic, we all know like restaurant traffic went off a cliff. And so they were trying to just innovate some new frozen meals and um, we kind of connected with them and we launched a bunch of their frozen meals that are just exceptional. And so we, we view ourselves as that kind of food incub incubation point, if you will, or product incubation point. I feel like there's a way that you could publish this like more broadly and out to the world in a way that, because there's so many entrepreneurs and operations people who listen to this podcast, for example, who they're trying to figure out, you know, what does the market need? Like, I want to go explore those areas and if we could say, like, here are the biggest problems and here, if you could create a product that kind of fits these criteria, even if it's really hard <laughs> to do that today, um, there's there's people who have the kind of like energy to go in and spend, you know, a couple of years trying to do that product development or recipe creation. And, and if we could be more open about here are the things that are unsolved at the moment that you could sort of offload some of that innovation and, and put it out there. I, I think that's a model that I'm not seeing enough yet in the CPG space. And if you do this, then you're going to have like, <laughs> we're definitely going to fast track you at, you know, talking to our category managers and, and, you know, make it easier for you to get into Thrive. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, that's kind of what we're going for. Um, we've kind of been working it from both sides. We get a lot of those outreaches. Um, right now. And let's be honest, that's part of the reason I'm talking to you now, right? Too, is like, we hope we get more and um, we hope more more of those folks find us. And so we work it kind of from both ends. We get that outreach. And then like I was saying earlier, we do a lot of the 
outreach ourselves with current brand partners or, or current suppliers that we're already working with that that make our dry market brand products or others. And it's quite fun. I mean, it's, um, again, so much of it's dictated by our members. So it makes it kind of a guaranteed opportunity, if you will, as much as you can. I mean, there's no such thing in CPG as a guaranteed opportunity, but at least we have some data points and some information from our members indicating that they want this type of innovation or they want this type of product when we make those requests. And and then it's just a matter of can brand X or supplier X actually do what we're asking. And that's another fascinating part of the food system, right? Is how much that happens now is just because of that's the way it's always been done in the past. We were talking about it with packaging earlier, but it also bleeds over into ingredients used, um, additives used, fillers used, preservatives used. A lot of what we see on the food shelves today is just because that's the way the product was always made or or some food scientists for one of the big brands identified a preservative system 40 years ago and no one ever changed it. Um, so we find just asking those questions, like why is that ingredient in there? Where does that come from? Can we do something else? You know, a lot of times that light bulb goes off as, as younger food scientists look at it and go, yeah, you don't actually need that. I don't know why it's in there. It's just always been in there. Um, we could take that out, sure. So it's it's pretty fun. You mentioned uh, some titles of books that you'd been reading <laughs> early in your career. What's on your uh, nightstand? What do you like, uh, whether it's food related or not, uh, what are you exploring right now in terms of themes and ideas that you're trying to learn about? Yeah, I've spent a lot of my time on regenerative organic the past few years. So um, for me, and then also I, I do have young children, so it means reading. My wife and I were just talking about this, how challenging it is to read because we're constantly, you know, making a snack or yeah. running around. But um, Kiss the Ground, the documentary on regenerative is definitely a really meaningful one and impactful one. Um, my wife actually just finished reading uh, Overstory. She was raving about um, and we both share a love of herbs and trees and nature. So she was, she is making me read that book next, which I'm really excited about after hearing her talk about it. But, uh, but I do spend a lot of my time just studying regenerative organic agriculture and farming and just really diving into that. A lot of it is more content based and less book based. Um, and so it's reading articles about farmers and reading. I, I'm part of a lot of trade groups. And so I get a lot of content sent my way um, from farmers and, and different sources that I spend a lot of time on. Can you define re- regenerative? I, I don't think um, we've actually talked about it on a podcast before. So I, I'd love for you to just kind of explain what it is and why you're so fascinated by it. Yeah, no, it's um, thanks for bringing it up. It is one of my favorite topics. So um, basically, the funny part about it is that so much of um, regenerative organic and even organic farming is really just a return to what, what once was, if you will. So it's it's not yeah. inherently innovative in as much as it's the way people farmed for, for years, which means minimizing inputs, um, in other words, fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, using nature or partnering with nature in a way that honors the earth and the environment and climate that you're actually in. 
And then really the fundamental tenets of a regenerative farm versus a traditional organic farm would just be reducing tilling. And by reducing tilling or or no tilling, um, you actually are able to decrease erosion, decrease water runoff, and actually sequester more carbon in the soil. So when you till, you, you basically roll through with giant machinery that churns up the land and you're reducing, you're releasing all the carbon that was pulled down from the atmosphere back into the atmosphere. And then you're also breaking up the earth and creating an environment for erosion. The second big tenet is encouraging biodiversity. So, you know, sadly in agriculture, we've moved from a, a world where we had lots of small farms everywhere that honored the, the climate that they were in or the landscape or the part of the world they were in to these big monocrops. And, you know, I always tell people, if you're not totally clear on what a monocrop is, when you fly over America or you fly over really any country and you see those giant squares, um, those are monocrop farms, right? So they're just rows and rows and rows of one crop. And it's it's efficient and you can grow a lot of food that way, but it really depletes the earth over time. So after a few harvests, you kind of run out of fertile land. So diverse biodiversity, having use, using cover crops, um, which just means planting in between your, your harvests, um, crops that actually nourish the earth, and then planting around those crops, trees and other complementary plants that bring in pollinators, that bring in other animal species and plant species that are actually support higher yields and support more biodiversity. And then the last two are composting. Um, so obviously using, using what your farm produces to then put back into the earth. And um, some of the most amazing regenerative farms I've been to are in Colombia, where they're literally capturing everything that falls from the trees and even the animal waste from livestock and all of that, and then creating this incredible compost. And it takes time. And what you're really doing is creating fertile soil. So you'll go to these bins where they're composting and they'll dip their hands in and just pull out this rich dirt that's full of worms. I mean, and it's just incredible. You just see the life flourishing. And then the last part is using livestock. And if you're if you have a farm where you implement or incorporate animals, using rotational grazing with cattle or pigs or sheep or other animals that are raised without hormones and antibiotics and encouraging them to graze freely, eat weeds, push down the earth. It's kind of a natural natural alternative to tilling, right? And then obviously they poop everywhere. So you're getting this manure that gets pounded into the soil and creates a richer richer microbiome for plants and uh, food to grow in. So it's really, I mean, again, when you think about it, it's not this profound concept. It's really very basic, but we've moved so far away from it with monocropping and and just this desire to increase yields all the time at, at any cost and using chemical inputs and GMOs and everything to try to make more food um, when, when in actuality you can do the opposite. You can honor nature and still have higher yields and a more healthy farm and a more sustainable farming operation. And oh, by the way, sequester carbon and thereby potentially fight climate change and, and help actually create a cooler world in the process. Well, we will definitely put those resources and like documentary and book that you mentioned in the show notes. I, I really want to keep digging into this um, topic. I hope 
find someone to have on the podcast to just go <laughs> on a deep dive about this because it's so fascinating. Yeah, um, it's pretty awesome. But thank you. Uh, <laughs> is is there any anything you want to point people to? Obviously, the Thrive Market website, uh, if they want to check that out, is at thrivemarket.com. W- what else should we be pointing people to? I mean, I think that's the big one, right? We also get a lot of positive feedback on our emails. Like I was saying earlier, we send a lot of emails around content. We're not the kind of emailer that's going to just be blitzing you with with sales and this and that all the time, we're more interested in recipes and educational content. We, you know, you just heard me wax poetic a little bit on, or maybe not so poetic, but wax on regenerative agriculture some. (laughs) And, um, you know, those are the types of emails we send out just talking about sustainability, regenerative, organic. Are you hiring right now? We are actually, we are hiring right now. (laughs) Sorry, keep going. (laughs) We have a careers pitch. Yeah. Who who makes a good fit at Thrive? And and who are, what roles are you looking for right now? We have a whole host of roles. If you go to our site and go to to the bottom, there's actually a careers section. I know from my team specifically, we have an open frozen category manager role. We have an open food, grocery food role. We have an open beauty and personal care role. And then we have an open associate brand manager role on the Thrive Market brand team. So we have lots of roles open. We love people that are passionate about natural and organic. As I mentioned earlier, we love solution-oriented thinkers, people who come in and are just tons of passion and really want to make a difference in the world and are really committed to the mission. I know I tend to be myopic. I focus on merchandising, but I do know we have tons of other roles in the company because we're growing leaps and bounds. So um, if you're mission-driven, mission-focused, and really passionate, we'd love to have you submit your resume online and love to talk to you. Well, thank you, Jeremiah. It's been awesome to have you. I could keep going another couple hours. Yes, I know. Me too. (laughs) Thanks for entertaining me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks and see you next time.